Hello everyone, and welcome to the Quorum Podcast. This is where academic medicine meets remote, austere, and resource-limited areas. Welcome back to the program. This is Averick Kelly. This week, I am with Dr. Will Smith. Will is a full board colonel in the U.S. Army. He's a medical director for the National Park Service. You're an assistant professor at the University of Washington. But most importantly, you are a paramedic. Will, welcome to the program. Great. Yeah, thanks for having me. Tell us about your background and, and what are you doing currently to keep busy? Yeah, so always busy. I think like most of us that play in this wilderness medicine, austere medicine field. So I actually live and work in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, and that's where I've worked for the past 20 years working in the emergency department as an emergency department physician. But my real passion is in the pre-hospital space. I grew up Southeast Wyoming on a 22,000 acre cattle ranch, took an EMT class my senior year of high school, and that's really what caught the medicine bug for me. But got told I couldn't drive the ambulance because I was too young at 18 years old, so I had to become an EMT intermediate so I could actually take care of patients in an ALS capacity before I could even drive the Mm. ambulance. And then went on to medical school and did paramedic school as a backup plan because I didn't get into my medical school first year I applied. So uh, I really have a passion for the uh, the pre-hospital environment. So I learned just today, you went to the University of Washington for med school. I did. I did what's called the WAMI program. You and I are going to UW at the same time. Oh, I didn't realize that. Uh, what were you doing out there at Washington? So I, I was just starting to get out of the Army of First Group, and I was doing a post-bac program trying for a pre-med, trying to get my uh, chem, my OCHEM, physics, things like that. Oh, yeah. OCHEM, that's got to be the uh, the worst. Oh, Jesus, Mary, Mother, and Joseph. Yeah, that was rough. Um, and, and funnily enough, I was studying a lot of the time in the uh, library for the med schools down there by the water, wasn't it? Uh, Portage Bay. Yep. Yeah. I spent many hours there as well. Yeah. We probably passed each other. Um, funnily enough, I, I was living on a sailboat right there. Uh, do you remember that Mexican restaurant that would uh, rent out kayaks? Oh yeah. And yeah, it was just, there was a, a place to more sailboats and I, uh, it was, I found it cheaper to, to take my 27 foot Catalina more there and live than it was to try to get housing in the area. So that was, yeah. And it was great to quickly go out and go sailing through Lake Union. So what, what made you do UW instead of University of Wyoming? Yeah. So the University of Wyoming didn't have a medical school. And so the University of Washington through what's called the WAMI program. So it's WWAMI. So the five states in the Western U.S. region. So Washington, Wyoming, Alaska, Montana, Idaho, so it was a program where the medical students do the first year in their home states. So I did my first year at the University of Wyoming and Laramie and the Anchorage students from Alaska. And then everybody goes first year in their home state. And then second year, all the states come to Seattle. Nice. And then third and fourth years for the clinical rotations are in Seattle and then out back through the Whammy region. So I actually did four and a half months of medical school here in Jackson. I snuck down to Australia for seven wow. weeks to do an international medicine rotation. So it uh, gave me a good opportunity to go practice medicine, all these different environments, went up to Anchorage. So yeah, it was a great opportunity to, to practice med school in a variety of environments. Nice. So you got your MD and you are specializing in emergency medicine. What got you interested in, in austere medicine and in, in wilderness medicine? Yeah, really just growing up on the ranch. So going out and gathering cattle and just learning how to navigate and get yourself home at the end of the day and take, your, take care of yourself in that kind of austere environment. And then got 
that EMT class. And during undergrad at the University of Wyoming, I started doing ski patrol. So just continued to kind of blend that compassion with the outdoor environment and just kept going. And finally moved here to Jackson after residency in Milwaukee and really found my way on the search and rescue team. Uh, started doing all these kind of outdoor, outdoor and austere environments. And then with my military hat, that's definitely taken me to some interesting places, both combat zones and non-combat zones around the world. Indeed. The ski patrol, was that Crystal or, or Mount Baker? Uh, it was actually outside of Laramie, Wyoming, so it's snowy range. Ah, okay. But I definitely had some friends that were up there at Crystal. And then here in Jackson, we do medical direction with our ER group for Jacksonville Mountain Resort and Grand Targhee and also interface with some of the uh, ski patrols here in town. And actually sit on the uh, National Ski Patrol Medical Advisory Council. So nice. continue my ski patrol roots to this day. Yeah, there's a lot of crossover there with with Oster Medicine and, and Wilderness Medicine and, and Ski Patrol. There, um, I can I can see how you got your interest on that one. Yeah, for sure. And then search and rescue—that's definitely where kind of really all those things come together. You're often going into more remote, austere locations. You're also a part of Wilderness Medical Society. You're part of SOMA. You're you're a pillar in both of those communities. And are, are you finding a crossover between those two, or, or what? What's your passion with with integrating the, the civilian and the military? Yeah, I found that that's generally been what I've been able to excel at is be able to break down some of these silos there. So be able to take best practices from what I'm learning from the military environment, and we learn and seen that with the TCCC or the Tactical Combat Casualty Care. And really, the different austere environments aren't that different from being shot at with bullets or bombs blowing up to dangerous situations with avalanches or even grizzly bears or cave environments. And so really, the the patient care continuum of what the TCCC has really brought out to the care under fire versus the tactical field care, those really amplify and cross over for basically all these different austere environments. There is a lot of people who go to both WMS and SOMA and, and myself as much as I can. It's, it's nice to see that we're learning from each community. I've learned a lot from WMS as well as SOMA. Yeah, this year at SOMA, we're going to try and do a wilderness medicine pre-track with Ian Wedmore, who's just the, the past president from Wilderness Medical Society. So if you're coming to SOMA, come check that out. That's fantastic. And I'm looking forward to that. If I, There's so many things in the SOMA. There's so many different tracks that it's going to be difficult to, to get to all of them. But as the, the chairman of the educational subcommittee of SOMA, we're, we're looking at doing more of a recording to, to allow people to see the, the miscontent after the fact, because there's, there's so many parallel tracks that it's always been a, a pain to, to miss out on a really good lecture. So I'm, I'm hoping that our, our subcommittee can get all of these, what, what we can record and uh, make it available for SOMA members. Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah. When I was kind of the co-lead for the SOMA conference a few years ago, yeah, it's definitely so difficult to to pick and choose what you're going to as there's so many different uh, excellent speakers that uh, come and share their knowledge. Yeah. So what kind of austere environments have you been in with the military? You've, you've deployed a few times and what, what kind of experiences have you found uh, in, in that, that of the many hats that you wear on that hat? Yeah, so my military experiences, I've been to Iraq twice. Uh, one of those was working some time in the Baghdad ER. So really got to, to see how that far forward uh, tactical combat kind of 
situation unfolded and I did residency in Milwaukee and the Baghdad ER really wasn't that different. I mean, you got all the penetrating trauma and everything coming in, um, had a deployment to Kuwait, which is a little bit different, but, uh, still kind of in that far forward, austere kind of combat zone. But then the military has also given me great opportunities to go do medical missions in Egypt to support bright star. So we were doing support on the, uh, uh, drop zone kind of out in the middle of the desert where paratroopers would come through. We also did a bunch of other uh, different things. So yeah, so I've had some definitely interesting military deployments and that sometimes is a kind of, kind of all encompassing term, but I've had uh, two deployments to Iraq, uh, worked in Baghdad ER, one of those. So that was really a, a, a neat opportunity to help take care of service members over there, but really some similarities to what I saw and, and took care of patients in inner city Milwaukee, where I did residency. And then I've had deployments to Kuwait, but then the other opportunities to go to non-combat zones. So did uh, medical support nice. for Bright Star uh, in Egypt. And so we took care of airdrops out in the middle of the Egyptian desert, been on to uh, Panama and El Salvador doing medical clinics, kind of in remote villages and then uh, medical support for an operation over in Croatia. So the military has definitely given me good opportunities to go see all these different uh, environments. And what kind of civilian deployments have you had? One of the probably most fun was going to Easter Island to be the trip docked with a group of about 100 to go view a solar eclipse down there. So most of the crew was all over the age of 50, but start looking at Eastern Island, kind of the most remote island in the in the world. And so about a six hour flight to get from there back to the mainland in Chile to where there's really any substantial medical care. So again, the pre-planning for that and being able to have contingency plans for if something happened. Luckily, we only had uh, one injury for a hand fracture for one of the guys that got bucked off a horse, but uh, otherwise it was a pretty uneventful mission and got to see the solar eclipse. That would be quite of an amazing experience on on its own, let alone having to follow some of these old people with defib pads in hand waiting for them to to have a, an incident. That's definitely definitely a challenge. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And so, really, is uh, interesting to, to pre plan some of these mission sets because you know you're not going to be able to take everything. So we actually even didn't even have an AED. And so mm-hmm. again, those were some of the decisions that kind of had to be made. How much Cuban weight can you carry? And so whether or not you're traveling Easter Island or you're doing some kind of austere backcountry wilderness trip, uh, a lot of those principles, you just have to decide kind of how much capability you're going to have and accept the risk for those things that you can't. Yeah, that is the, the challenge of austere medicine, isn't it? Definitely. So you've recently joined our academic teaching facility. You are on our Masters of Osteocritical Care faculty. Welcome to the team. Yeah, thank you. I'm very excited. So tell us, what, what do you want to bring to the uh, Osteocritical Care program and, and what improvements would you like to say? Yeah, I think it's just sharing best practices that's out there. And like I mentioned before, crossing all these different silos, I've had opportunity to glimpse into military and tactical environments, had opportunities to look at kind of wilderness, austere environments. I've had a couple of opportunities to go to a couple of places in sub-Saharan Africa. And again, the tyranny of distance, the, the term we hear, because over there you may be really caring for a patient for instead of just an hour, like the golden hour, like we saw some of the deployed zones, you may be dealing with people for days. And so really sharing those best practices between all these different environments, because many of the principles are very similar. And so figuring out kind of which of the principles are similar, 
but just then recognizing some of the different nuances based on some of the tropical medicine versus altitude versus all the other different environments you might find mm-hmm. yourself in. The, the master's program is aimed at the 18 Delta, the, the, the soft medic, but we have a well, far more civilian people going through the program. We have 54 on the program. So what would you like to introduce to the, those, that type of, so these are, are advanced practitioners. They've been around for a while, 10, 15 years under the belt. What advice would you have for that student? I think it's really some of the concept that the prolonged field care working group, and now they've had guidelines that have been published with the joint trauma system, with the clinical practice guidelines, is is figuring out, I like some of their concepts of the good, better, best. So we know what the ideal treatment is if we're sitting in the brick and mortar emergency department in a first world country with all the essentially unlimited resources. But then when you start kind of looking at that good, better, best continuum, okay, what's what's better? What what are you going to be able to carry? And then what what may be the the minimum or the the limitations that you find yourself in? And then the the other mantra that they have is the uh, the ruck truck house plane. So as you're caring for a patient through a different care continuum, whether that that's a medical illness or a traumatic event, it's really looking at how you can optimize your care through each one of those symptoms, through each one of those pieces of the system and uh, being able to optimize that. So I think those are, those are some of the concepts that I found that really are uh, applied easily across all these different care environments. Yeah, the, the prolonged field care concepts are, are definitely a game changer with, with the military medicine and you, implying that or, or bringing that over to civilian is equally important. And, and Sean Keenan and the AEC crowd has created that four-day PFC content for civilians. But this is, it's the same principles, the minimum, better, best, the, the four, four stages of care works regardless of who you are. Yeah, absolutely. And so those are things that I think that when you start tackling some of these problems, when they seem like there's really nothing you can do, there, there's generally things that you can find to improvise or be able to pre-plan a little bit and be able to have XYZ, the thing or item or med that's going to be able to care, cover uh, multiple different uh, contingencies. So, Will, can you tell me a memorable patient you had in a, in a very austere environment? What, what was the situation and what was your thought process? Yeah, one of the one of my more memorable ones was here in Grand Teton National Park where we had a gentleman who started having some chest pain and then went into actual cardiac arrest. And so generally when you have a cardiac arrest in the wilderness, the outcome is generally not very favorable, but the systems of care were in place. So they recognized early that he had a medical emergency. They called 911. We were able to get our search and rescue team, uh, which is a county-based unit in coordination with Grand Teton National Park Rangers in a coordinated response. And we were able to short haul in with myself and one of the rangers and the patient went into cardiac arrest as we were being inserted. And so again, trying to recognize what are those things that you can do? What are the time sensitive interventions? Had an AED, gave him a shock and within 10 minutes he was alert and awake. So again, that's uh, one of the, the more amazing outcomes that you generally don't see. And if you actually go to the Fine Line podcast series, um, which is part of our preventative search and rescue that our Teton County Search and Rescue Foundation uh, puts on, um, the Fine Line, you can actually listen to his account. And we've got multiple podcast series that talk about different rescues that we've had. And 
part of it's just interesting to hear the operational side of it from the search and rescue. But then the, the thing that I actually find most intriguing is what's the patient's perspective? What are the friends and family that are on scene? How are they affected? Kind of what is going on from their lens. And so that's, it's been a pretty neat eye opener to understand kind of how those patients and the friends and family think when, when we're so focused on the operation, but again, what their side is. So, Will, I also noticed that you're interested in AI and healthcare. Where do you see AI going and, and how can we use it and as remote medics? Yeah, the artificial intelligence world is definitely upon us. Hopefully don't get to the uh, Terminator <laughs> kind of uh, scenario here anytime soon. But I mean, there's already some things out there that we're using, um, but the, the technology and the ability to improve patient care, I think point of care ultrasound or POCUS is one of the amazing tools that we're going to have. I think probably within the next few years, we'll probably be throwing our, our stethoscopes in a trash can. And instead of a stethoscope, we'll have an ultrasound kind of hanging around our neck, trying to get vital signs, trying to get diagnostic uh, interpretation. There's already so much stuff that we're learning and more that we can even develop further. But I think AI is going to be a thing that we can really help with getting that right image. So the artificial intelligence will help try and direct a novice user to redirect the probe in a certain direction. And then once you get that image, be able to, to, to help solve what's going on on the screen. So sometimes it just looks like a big white snowstorm to some people, but once you start getting some familiarity, I think ultrasound then can help with that decision matrix of, okay, you've got a tension pneumothorax on your E-FAST exam. Now you need to do a needle decompression on the right mm. side of the chest. So I think uh, artificial intelligence and, and POCUS is going to be uh, ability to help provide care in some of these far forward austere locations. Last summer, there was some exhibitor that had a POCUS ultrasound that had AI in it that labeled the structures that you were looking at in the body. Yeah. And then there's kind of looking for urinary retention for bladder volume. I mean, some of these things are already being used in the hospitals already with bladder scanners, but then looking at ejection fractures of the hearts, looking at some of these other trauma studies, looking at some of the things you can see with high altitude and looking at the optic nerve mm. through the eyeball and be able to look at intracranial pressure. So again, I think there's so many things that uh, we have to, uh, to, to move our medical care forward with this intersection of AI and healthcare. Do you see AI coming to a smartphone that would be offline allow us to help us with assessment and diagnostics as a austere medic? Yeah, absolutely. And so whether or not you've got immediate feedback to some telemedicine into a, a bigger telemedicine care structure, so maybe multiple medics out in the field with simultaneous feedback to more of a central medical command, being able to do that. But again, some of these austere places, you may not have that reach back capability. So making sure that you've got a robust capability. But I think anytime you're dealing with technology, you still have to be able to fall back to the basics. And so I think that's one of the main, big things we have to make sure we don't forget to, to be able to how to take care of patients with just our hands, with our eyes, with very other limited technology if the batteries die or gets too cold. So making sure that we continue to remember the basics. That's good advice that we can't rely too much on technology, that we still need to teach the tactical skills, the tactile skills of assessment. Yeah, absolutely. And then also the, the experience for you as a, as a doc, after all these years, you could walk into a room and immediately know before even talking to the patient that they're acutely unwell, that, that AI can't really sort that out. 
Yeah, and that's the thing I think we'll still need to have care providers in the loop. So we'll still need the human to have that care and interaction. AI is just going to be a tool. And so, yeah, like you mentioned, I think it's important to make sure we don't forget that. So what AI are you using on a daily basis? I haven't really developed or kind of use anything too immediate. I mean, certainly there's some things that help us with some decision tools um, that, but I, I think most of it's still in that developmental phase and especially kind of trying to get FDA approvals from some of these things that go in that patient care continuum. So using ultrasound, I mean, it's still the, the user acquiring the images and interpreting those, but I see those as some of the next steps that uh, I know they're, they're getting worked on, but nothing is ready for prime time that uh, I'm aware of. Yeah, it's still in the development stage. I, I read some article that radiologists are pretty much out of a job in about six months. Yeah, I've been seeing a lot of things with helping them look at like mammograph images to be able to help some of that image recognition. Um, again, it's not going to be able to completely replace kind of the human in the system or the physician or care provider, but it definitely can augment and so help decrease some of those potential errors that are easy for an AI kind of system to interpret. But yeah, you still need to make sure you have that kind of cognitive oversight by the human in the system. I'm seeing AI in academia being a profound benefit and also a risk. So we have to look at the, the Masters of Osteocritical Care and our doctoral programs for the use of AI on writing content. And it's still in, in, in a contentious stage. And they're going to have AI that checks for AI. I'm not sure how that's going to work. But are you using this to assess for articles or anything like that? I haven't really dived into that, but again, I think I'm still on the novice on the front. I mean, yeah, the chat GPT that's out there, but I think it's like everything that we do in medicine, everything we do in life, everything we do in search and rescue, wilderness medicine is, is balancing that risk to benefit. And so just making sure that those checks and balances are in there to make sure that the information we're getting is accurate, uh, making sure that it applies to the situation that we're in to make sure we're not doing something blindly in, in a space or an environment or a situation where we need to be doing something different. So I have an odd question for you. As a wilderness medic, Oster medic, what are the top three tools in your kit that you would want? So light, I think, is one of the big things that sometimes you forget about if you're kind of used to always working in the emergency room <clears throat> and you're going to turn the lights on, turn the lights off. But when you start getting into some of this austere, especially night or cave situations, making sure that you've got good light, mm. some of the tactical situations, white light isn't something that you sometimes want to have. So again, really knowing and understanding how you can kind of illuminate whatever you're working on. So whether or not that's a patient care, whether or not that's going through your kind of med bag, knowing where everything's at. But I think illumination is, is one of the, the, the first big ones I would think of. And then the other things I think um, pulse ox is pretty helpful. Nice. So if you can get kind of reliable pulse ox reading, I know there's a lot of things that can throw it off, cold fingers, different stuff like that movement. But if you can get a, a good reliable kind of pulse ox pleth with a good waveform and a good vital sign, heart rate and uh, saturations, I think that can help you as a clinician, um, especially if you've got some remote monitoring device. There's a, a Bluetooth um, pulse ox that I have that uh, can connect to my phone so you can do a little bit of remote monitoring. Nice. So if you're doing a wheel out or some sort of other technical rescue, um, you can look at that. Again, different military environments, you might need to kind of 
not have some of this open source Bluetooth kind of things like that out there, but in most of the regular search and rescue SDR environments, um, those are a couple of the things. And then the last thing that I think of is just really having that really good training that prepares you to take care of all the patients and all the different environments that you might find yourself in. It's the hands-on time, isn't it? It's, it's getting your, your, the experience under your belt. Yeah, because kind of you kind of when when everything gets crazy, you just basically fall back onto that level of your training. I like to delineate the the learning of between hand learning and head learning, and it's important to get the head learning because that's that's what we're relying on for for knowledge. But it's not until that head learning gets into my hands that I actually believe that I I own that knowledge. And in paramedics, as you've seen this many times yourself. You're, it's three o'clock in the morning, the rain's coming at you sideways, you're on pavement and you're dealing with this guy with lots of blood coming out and, and your head is, is just fuzzy, isn't it? You're just, but what carries you through is your hands and your hands will start do, they know what to do. They, they start doing your CABC and then somewhere around B, your, your head finally catches up and uh, are, are seeing what your, your hands are doing. So it, yeah, that hand knowledge, that dirt time really does make a difference. Yeah, absolutely. And so there's there's no way to completely replace that. Even with some of these potentially AI learning devices, things like that, you still got to kind of, again, like we talked about, remember the basics. So we have the Kilimanjaro Christian Medical Center for our hands-on. We got to get you down there, Will, to see see what our master's students doing or what our, our bachelor's paramedic students are doing for hands-on. Yeah, I'd love to get back down there and climb Kilimanjaro kind of several years ago nice. now, but uh, definitely kind of one of my more memorable experiences. So yeah, that, that sounds like a, a good time. Yeah, it's pretty amazing to just look up at that that mountain as you uh, go to work. So my last question for you, Will, what advice do you have for the remote medic, the osteo provider who is starting out and getting work uh, in a resource limited environment? Yeah, I think it's the same rule that I probably teach my kids and kind of other people is the number one rule is don't freak out. So no matter what situation you find yourself in, try and remain calm. And I think this is one of those things that you just have to have a little bit of self-awareness. So just realize when you start freaking out and hopefully don't get too far down that continuum, but just, just sit back, take a couple breaths. And then again, like you said, start getting that mind learning to catch up and really think about what you're doing, kind of what situations you're in, because the more that you can stabilize and think about what you're doing, the more that you're going to be able to process through the problem, no matter what it is. Do you have any advice for those who are currently freaking out? Do you have a mantra or do you have a happy place to go to? I think it's just taking a big, deep breath and just kind of, again, just don't act, just sit there for a second, take in everything that's going on. And once you recognize it, the, the situation, or you're feeling like you might be out of control, I mean, every once in a while, there's there's a situation where the immediate act has to be done. So like in a potential active shooter, mass violence event, just kind of getting yourself out of that immediate danger. Um, but then kind of once you're able to just, yeah, take a deep breath, <clears throat> count to 10, kind of find out what works for you. And that's going to be what you just need to figure out. And so just trying to, to teach kids and medics, there, there's a very few times in your life where you actually get to that edge of kind of where you're getting to that kind of mental black space of where you're just losing that cognitive capacity. And so just realizing that and then just getting yourself to be able to back off and get back into that functional space is so key. It reminds me of, of deep survival uh, by Gonzalez. It's a book that 
yep. covers that. And and if anyone hasn't read that, it it's on my reading list. I try to get to it every couple of years to reread it. It it deals with yeah the the freaking out aspect. Yep, it's on my shelf as well. So, Will, thanks for your time, and I appreciate your your speaking on our podcast, and I'm very much appreciative of you joining our teaching faculty. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, yeah, look forward to continuing with all the fun wilderness medicine stuff that's out there and sharing it with others. This has been a presentation from the College of Remote and Offshore Medicine. If you would like to earn CPD credits for this podcast, you can join the Council of Members. Being a member of the college gives you free CPD credit, free access to our virtual field guide, and discounts on our e-learning courses. You can join the team on our college website at quorum.edu.mt.